0: The White House dismisses House Republican efforts to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, calling it an evidence-free goose chase. It's Wednesday, September 13th. This is W.B. Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin meets with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un with the U.S. warning of more sanctions if they reach an arms deal
1: we would call on North Korea to meet its previous stated public commitments not to supply
2: weapons to Russia.
0: Also this hour, tech leaders meet today with a bipartisan group of U.S. Senators to discuss the future of artificial intelligence.
2: All of these groups talking about how and why Congress must act and how to build a consensus for safe innovation.
0: And what's behind the fast-rising cost of car insurance, Rain today in the 70s. It's 7:01 now. The news
3: live from NPR News in Washington. I'm Janine Herbst. In Libya, 2,000 bodies have been recovered from the eastern port city of Derna after heavy rains caused dams to burst, sending floodwaters into the town. Officials say entire
4: neighborhoods were washed away. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more. With roads cut off, um, there's very, there was very little help getting to Derna for the 30th the first 36 hours, now there are responders in the city. Uh, Faraj al hasi of the Libyan Red Crescent, Crescent, he's uh, in the organization's emergency response room and he told me they're being inundated with calls by people who are still stranded uh, in the storm debris or trapped under rubble and they're also looking at how to cope with all of those that have lost their homes. And Pierre's Ruth Sherlock reporting
3: Libya is a country that's divided by two rival governments and has dealt with more than a decade of conflict. The Senate's getting back to work on crafting legislation that would regulate the use of AI. And Piers Windsor-Johnston reports the first of a series of forums will be
5: held today as lawmakers scramble
3: to keep up with the emerging technology.
5: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says today's AI Insight Forum is the next step in the complicated process of regulating artificial intelligence.
2: It will affect just about every aspect of society in major ways both positive and negative. And on an issue this wide-ranging and important, we must make every good faith effort to act.
5: Schumer says members of the Senate will be seeking input from tech pioneers, including Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates. The forums, which will run through the fall, will also hear from academics, national security experts, and civil rights leaders. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
3: The CDC says everyone aged six months or older should get an updated COVID vaccine this fall. And Paris Maria Godoy reports this guidance follows an FDA advisory group's recommendations on the vaccine's rollout.
6: In a statement, the CDC said that vaccinating everyone from six months and up with updated shots will protect against potentially serious outcomes from COVID illness this fall and winter. Updated COVID vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna will be available later this week. In a separate statement, the Department of Health and Human Services said that most Americans will still be able to get a COVID vaccine for free. For people with health insurance, most plans will cover the COVID-19 vaccine at no cost. People who don't have health insurance or who have health plans that do not cover the cost can get a free
3: vaccine from their local health centers and pharmacies. Maria
7: Godoy,
0: NPR News.
3: U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. Dow futures down about one-tenth of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts is under a state of emergency this morning because of catastrophic flooding in Leominster and North Attleboro. More than 10 inches of rain fell in those areas on Monday night. The emergency declaration from Governor Keeley will free up more state resources for flood recovery, In Leominster, school is canceled again today because of the flood. More rain is in the forecast today. State emergency officials fear that could cause even more damage. Two sitting Boston city councilors have lost their bids for re-election. Incumbents Ricardo Arroyo and Kendra Laura became the first incumbents in decades to fail to advance past the preliminary elections. WBUR's Dan Guzman has more on yesterday's election results.
8: Councillor Lara's campaign was hurt by an incident in June, when investigators say she crashed an unregistered car into a house without a license. Benjamin Weber and William King will vie for her district six seat, which covers parts of Jamaica Plain and West Roxbury. In district five, Councillor Arroyo lost his re-election bid less than a year after his unsuccessful effort to become Suffolk County DA. Enrique Pepin and Jose Ruiz will compete in November to represent areas of Hyde Park. Roslindale, and Mattapan. In District 7, incumbent counselor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson will face former counselor Althea Garrison in November. In the race for the open District 3 seat, John Fitzgerald and Joel Richards won the preliminary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman.
0: State lawmakers are looking at a bill that would address unintended consequences caused by Massachusetts' domestic violence privacy law. The current law keeps secret all police records of domestic and sexual violence, but a WBUR investigation last year found the law was harming survivors and protecting alleged abusers. WBUR's Ali Jarmaning reports that the bill would create a task force to study whether changes should be made.
9: Bill sponsor, State Senator John Velas, told fellow lawmakers he's heard from victim advocates that the law isn't working for survivors.
0: Those restrictions
10: to access in the statute have actually made it harder and more complex for survivors to access their own police incidents reports and other records that they need to file restraining orders or custody petitions.
9: He says that could lead to repeated abuse. Velas told the committee that he's talking with advocates like Jane Doe, Inc. about changing the makeup of the task force and addressing sexual assault records as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani.
0: The Massachusetts Republican Party is considering charging presidential candidates to get on the 2024 ballot. The fee, $20,000. The mass GOP says the fee would be cut in half if the candidate attends a party event ahead of the primary. The group says the fee would encourage candidates to interact with voters in Massachusetts. Other state parties also charge these fees, including New Hampshire and South Carolina. It's 707.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CitySide Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitySideSubaru.com. Love is Now Electric, and the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists.
0: ICABoston.org. The Red Sox lost both games of yesterday's doubleheader to the New York Yankees. They lost the early game 3-2, to then lost the nightcap 4-1. to The teams will meet again tonight. The entire region is under a flood watch through tomorrow morning. Rain will move in later this morning. Some of it could be heavy at times. It'll be in the mid-70s. More rain is possible overnight. It'll be in the 60s. Partly sunny tomorrow with another chance for showers in the 70s again. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity,
10: regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
6: And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Lawmakers are back in Congress with a looming government shutdown and a formal impeachment inquiry on the horizon. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. But first, Russian President Vladimir Putin welcomed North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to Russia's Far East today. They met in Vladivostok on the Russian Pacific coast, the same venue as their last meeting in 2019. But the circumstances are very different from four years ago. Russia is fighting a war and is shunned by the West, and the impoverished North Koreans appear to have something Russia desperately needs. We're going to hear now from NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow and Anthony Kuhn in Seoul, who have both followed this relationship for years. Good morning to you both.
12: Morning, Layla. Good morning.
6: Let's start with you, Charles. What do we know about the meeting between Putin and Kim?
13: Well, you know, Kim's state visit comes at Putin's invitation, and the the setting was designed to impress. Uh, North Korea has recently failed twice uh, to launch into orbit its own spy satellites. And so it was with great interest that Kim got a close up tour of Russia's Vostochny launch pad. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's listen in a bit. So so here, as Putin looks on, a representative of Roscosmos, the Russian space program, gives Kim a lesson, saying Russian rockets don't sit directly on the launch pad, but are suspended by a harness, a pretty good life hack for launching a satellite something else, if that's your aim. Uh, Later, Putin and Kim gave official introductory remarks. Uh, Putin didn't say much beyond thanking Kim for making the journey to Russia and saying all subjects were on the table. Uh, Kim, in turn, expressed his gratitude to Putin for the warm reception. Uh, Both leaders were notably accompanied by high-level military delegations, along with foreign policy and economic teams. Uh, That said, most of the content of these meetings is likely to remain secret. Uh, The Kremlin says there'll be no press conference to speak
6: of. Anthony, I want to bring you in here. Now that Charles has sort of described the meeting from today, let's talk about the history of this relationship. North Korea has been a Soviet and Russian ally since its beginnings. What's different now in that relationship?
12: Well, there's been a sea change since the last time Kim and Putin met in Vladivostok in 2019. Back then, diplomacy between the U.S. and North Korea was still alive, barely. Uh, Russia and China had voted for sanctions on North Korea in 2017-2018, and Russian and North Korean interests just did not align as much. Mm. Now with the war in Ukraine and the U.S. beefing up its military presence in Asia, that's all changed. North Korea is now... Uh, more isolated, but also its military is a lot more formidable. And they emphasize that point today by launching two ballistic missiles for the first time with Kim out of the country, suggesting that a foe could take out Kim but still not be safe from his nukes.
6: Interesting. So what does North Korea hope to get out of this meeting?
12: Well, North Korea is really betting on its nuclear and missile arsenals as to, uh, to guarantee its survival. And Kim and Putin talked about cap cooperation on satellites, not missiles, but they both rely on rocket technology. So the U.S. argues that satellites are cover for missiles. And Russia has been reluctant previously about sharing advanced military technology, but some experts believe that's changing. For example, Hong Min at the Korea Institute for National Unification, a government think tank in Seoul. Let's hear him speak. I believe the plan is for Russia to provide technical assistance to North Korea in stages, he says, such as re-entry technology for intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missiles and advances in hypersonic missiles and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Obviously, Leila, that is a very threatening scenario for the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, who would have to respond.
6: Now, Charles, I have really the same question for you. What does Russia hope to get out of this meeting?
13: Well, this has all been framed as neighbors doing what neighbors do, uh, deepening relations, developing ties in a range of areas. But the question is, why now? And the answer is clearly Ukraine, uh, Russia's wide and Russia's wider conflict with the West that's come out of it. You know, well in advance of the talks, the U.S. said this summit was about Russia trying to gain access to North Korea's vast weapons stores, a a desperate and dangerous Russian bid, in in Washington's view, uh, to resupply the Kremlin's military campaign in Ukraine, uh, given that the war shows no signs of slowing down. So if indeed, as it appears, Russia is after North Korean arms, the question, as Anthony suggests, is what does Kim want in return? and what is Russia willing to give uh, you know Putin addressed this issue head on today when he was asked by a Russian reporter he said that's why we're here at this cosmodrome an acknowledgement that North Korea wants russian advanced technology mm. uh, but there's a case to be made that there are limits to what russian technology that might include you know Putin and Kim's opening remarks were made against the backdrop of the Vostochny Cosmodrome that featured you know, orbital stations and satellites, but notably no rockets, no weapons. And Russia, as a nuclear superpower, in many ways doesn't have a long-term interest in helping North Korea's nuclear program, if merely because it doesn't want to see the Korean Peninsula, which borders Russia, after all, uh, turned into a nuclear battleground.
6: Now, the regional power that was not at this meeting is, is China. Anthony, what are its interests in any Russia-North Korea relationship?
12: Well, it was interesting that um, Kim Jong-un's first post-pandemic trip out of the country is to Russia, not China. It has a far bigger economic relationship with China. So the suggestion is, I guess you could say, that Pyongyang is, uh, you know, has other powerful backers besides Beijing. But uh, some of the same factors that have driven Pyongyang and Moscow closer together have done the same for Beijing and Moscow. So I don't think Beijing is about to complain about the summit. Uh, But as Charles mentioned, uh, like Russia, China also has concerns about proliferation of nukes on its doorstep. It is also trying to keep ties with the U.S. and Japan and South Korea from going off the rails, and that may temper its response to today's summit.
6: Anthony Kuhn in Seoul and Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you both for your reporting.
12: Thanks, Leila. Thank you.
10: Congress is back in session this week with a full plate for lawmakers, a budget impasse and a possible government shutdown, a hold on the promotions of top Pentagon brass. And just yesterday, an announcement that the House will start impeachment proceedings against President Biden. Senator Mark Kelly is a Democrat from Arizona who serves on the Armed Services Committee. Senator, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you and good morning. Now, uh, Kevin McCarthy says that uh, President Biden lied about his family's business dealings and should be impeached. What do you make of that?
14: Well, this isn't, uh, you know, serious, uh, mean, there is not a shred of evidence to, uh, you know, justify it. That's why they couldn't hold the vote. Uh, that's why my Republican colleagues in the United States Senate uh, have said that they don't see any evidence.
10: Is there anything you're hearing from House colleagues that could? possibly justify this
14: no actually i haven't uh, not a single one uh has reached out uh and it's because this is uh not a serious inquiry here um the thing they should be focused on is the fact that government funding is going to expire in a couple weeks we've got a war going on in ukraine uh we have to defeat putin you were you know, just talking about the uh, North Korean leader being in, being in Russia. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we should be focused on, lowering costs for Americans, creating good-paying jobs. Um, there's a lot on our agenda, and at the top of the list is keeping the government open. And and this is a distraction and a waste of time.
10: Do you think the House can do both at the same time, uh, start impeachment proceedings and try and get the government not to shut down?
14: You mean doing two things at once? Yeah. Yeah, have you seen Congress do that historically? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been in the United States Senate now for two and a half years, uh, and i got to say, I'm not speaking for the House, but for the Senate, I've never seen an organization uh, with rules that uh, make it really difficult to get things done. If you know, I spent 15 years at NASA flying the space shuttle. If NASA had the rules of the United States Senate, uh, the rocket ship would never leave the launch pad.
10: All right, let's turn to that, actually, the U.S. military. You served 25 years, as you mentioned, as a NASA astronaut in the Navy as well. Your uh, Republican colleague in the Senate, uh, Tommy Tuberville, is holding up promotions for hundreds of generals and admirals, including the confirmation of a new joint chief's uh, chair, because he opposes the military's reimbursement for travel by military personnel seeking reproductive care, and that includes abortions. Uh, here's uh, the Senator yesterday.
15: We need to get politics out of the military. It has no place. In the place that keeps this country and our allies safe,
10: Senator Tuberville says that the U.S. Senate could still confirm positions by a floor vote. So, Senator Kelly, why not go that route? Considering this holdup has been going on for over six months.
14: Well, the reason is under the rules of the Senate, these take a long time, upwards of a, a week each. We have we're now up to about 301 uh, service members that their promotions are on hold. Uh, what Senator Tuberville is doing is unprecedented. I mean, it's significantly harming our national security. And it's not just about them. I mean, it's not just about the service members, it's also about their families. And these are serious jobs. We're talking about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Yesterday I had the uh, the first woman who's gonna lead the United States Navy, of which I served in for 25 years she's going to be stuck doing two jobs at once. And as the Chief of Naval Operations, she'll be acting, which means she can't make the most significant decisions for the future of our Navy.
10: But wouldn't it be better to confirm slowly, very slowly, than not at all?
14: Well, I think for some positions, you know, we, we unfortunately, because of Senator Tuberville uh, and what he is doing, of course, we're going we're gonna to have to look at this.
10: So how does this get resolved?
14: Uh, the best way to resolve it is for Senator Tuberville to release this hold. It's as simple as that. I mean, it takes, uh, you know, one phone call, not even by him, by his, uh, you know, somebody on his team. And this is, you know, this is over. Um, you know, serving in the military is, you know, really hard. And what he is doing is, uh, is just, he either doesn't understand or doesn't care uh, about the damage that he's doing to our armed forces. And it's unconscionable.
10: That's United States Senator Mark Kelly, Democrat from Arizona. Senator, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBOR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates will meet with U.S. senators behind closed doors today to talk about artificial intelligence. It's
11: 7:20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard's Art Lab with the film Bravo Burkina. A magical migration love story by Wale Oyeji Day. Tomorrow at 7, Art Lab at Harvard.
10: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
16: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
0: WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. Learn about Boston's neighborhoods, history, urban legends, and more. Dive in now at WBUR.org slash field guide. Showers and thunderstorms likely today. Some may produce heavy rain, and there's a flood watch in effect through tomorrow morning. We'll have high temperatures near 75. Tonight, more showers possible, otherwise cloudy, with a low around 65. Tomorrow, it finally clears up for a mostly sunny day with a high near. 75, right now it's 67 degrees in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from the station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller, rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez.
6: And I'm Leila Falden it's a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. Nearly one million people have fled Sudan after fighting broke out in the northeastern African country in mid-April. Millions are displaced within Sudan, but for those who've been able to leave, the biggest group, at least 400,000, have crossed into neighboring Chad, forming an enormous and growing makeshift camp. Last week, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, visited that site near the Chad-Sudan border. Our League, Michelle Martin went along.
18: I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Chad, but across here I'm in Sudan.
16: The ambassador made it clear that her trip had two objectives, first to demonstrate the U.S. government's concern about conditions there, but also to try to throw a bigger international spotlight on the crisis. That's why she invited journalists to accompany her, so we could see the situation for ourselves. From Washington, that meant multiple flights, a nearly hour-long helicopter ride, and further travel over land. And what we saw was devastating. Families arriving on foot, on the back of a donkey or on a horse-drawn cart, some by car or truck. Some arrived with only the clothes they were wearing or belongings stuffed into bags. Some have household goods piled around them, family members holding on. At this particular border crossing near a village in Chad called Adre, relief workers said the flow of refugees had slowed in part because heavy rains had made the roads harder to travel, but at times as many as 2,000 people a day have been crossing from Sudan. We met one man, Salah Ahmed Omer, who told us he fled Sudan with his family after they were threatened by armed rebels.
19: They enter our home by gun, uh, and frighten the, the women, I built all my life and did my best and
20: forced it to leave my house.
16: Omer said he could no longer tell who was on which side, so he couldn't figure out how to protect his family. Others, speaking through interpreters, gave similar accounts of watching their homes and businesses destroyed, no reason given. Sudan has seen conflict on and off for decades, but the most recent fighting is between the Sudanese armed forces and the paramilitary rapid support forces over territory and control. At least 4,000 people have been killed since April, but the actual death toll is expected to be much higher. Back in the U.S., heads of state and top diplomats are expected in New York next week for their annual gathering at the United Nations. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. representative to the U.N., said she intends to keep the spotlight on Sudan.
18: The situation in Sudan has to be on the agenda. And we have to engage with the parties on that. So my purpose is to bring this to a high-level week to get the parties to come together to talk about what the solutions are and actually forge a way forward. And uh, that's a a tall order, uh, but it's something that I think is intensely important for us to do.
16: There remains a concern because only about a quarter of the funding the U.N. has requested to respond to Sudan has been delivered. But just why this crisis has struggled to capture the world's attention is difficult to say. Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, told us he thinks it could be the sheer number of crises going on in the world right now.
20: You know, I hate this word, but unfortunately it's real. There is fatigue. There are too many humanitarian crises. COVID and Ukraine have um, absorbed... A great deal of resources and let me be very clear i'm not criticizing the fact that those crises needed a response and actually ukraine continues to need a response but the fact is that public spending has gone through the roof and uh, unfortunately when it comes to cutting public spending overseas aid is often the first victim
18: the situation here in chad demands that we be here demand that we amplify what is a critical humanitarian and
16: human rights situation. That's Ambassador Thomas Greenfield again. Thomas Greenfield is a career diplomat with a long history in refugee relief and in Africa. She was actually serving in Rwanda when the genocide began in the mid-1990s. And she says this current crisis is among the worst that she has seen.
18: There are days in a life that you know, as they're unfolding, will stay with you forever and that will haunt you forever. And today, for me, was one of those days. Today, I saw people on the brink of death, including young children.
16: While in Audrey, Thomas Greenfield visited a field hospital and spoke with refugees as well as those offering support. What struck her most, she said, was not the harsh conditions. It was something else. The lack of hope. Uh, the fear that
18: people express uh, to me as I spoke to them about why they were crossing the border. Uh, Seeing children in the hospital who were malnourished and seeing uh, the amazing but desperate work that was being done by uh, UN and NGO humanitarian workers to
16: save lives. It was extraordinarily emotional and it was extraordinarily sad. The U.S. last week announced an additional $163 million in humanitarian assistance for Chad, Sudan, and neighboring countries. This brings Washington's total commitment to respond to the Sudan emergency to nearly $710 million for this fiscal year. But as U.N. Commissioner Grandi told us, emergency aid alone is not
20: enough. This issue of people on the move, be they refugees or economic migrants or people moving because of climate factors and so forth, they cannot become a visible crisis only when they reach the borders of rich countries, be it the United States or the European countries. If you don't address everything upstream, you will continue to have, because movement is inevitable in the present circumstances. So this is really, should be a call for more investments, development investments, but also humanitarian ones upstream and upstream. The UN
16: estimates that hundreds of thousands more people are likely to cross into Chad as the year goes on, bringing the total number of refugees in the country to 600,000, a crisis that is not likely to end until the fighting does. And there's no end to that in sight.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We learn about WBUR's new field guide to Boston, a resource to help newcomers and longtime residents feel at home. It's 7.29.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. ClimateInteractive.org and ThoughtForms-Corp.com.
8: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Democratic lawmakers in the House are denouncing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for announcing an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries calls it illegitimate and a waste of taxpayers' money. McCarthy cites allegations of corruption and abuse of power stemming from committee investigations into son Hunter Biden's foreign business deals. Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina says he's taking a wait-and-see approach.
11: It's about us doing the homework. I don't feel like the Democrats did their homework in the two impeachment proceedings. If they've got facts and evidence, they want to run through a traditional process, we'll see what the result is.
8: The White House is criticizing Republicans in Congress for not supporting an extension of the Biden administration's child tax credit. It expired almost two years ago. NPR's Jennifer Ludden says the criticism follows the release of a report from the U.S. Census Bureau showing child poverty has more than doubled a year after it dropped to a record low.
21: Experts point to the expanded child tax credit as key to this poverty yo-yo. More lower-income families were able to get it during the pandemic, and most parents said they used it on really basic household needs or to pay down debt. When it ended, surveys found many struggled to pay their bills or buy enough food.
8: This is NPR News from Washington.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A key program to increase home ownership in Massachusetts has seen the percentage of borrowers of color increase nearly fourfold in a decade. WBR Simon Rios has more on the new report from Boston Indicators, a racial wealth equity research group.
8: The report finds that while 73% of white families in greater Boston own a home, roughly 40% of black and Latino families are owners. Researcher Luke Schuster says some state groups have made big strides in reaching people of color, but high housing costs are making the work more difficult.
22: These programs are, are doing a lot to help, you know, a family of four at around $100,000 a year in the city of Boston, you know, potentially buy a first home. But with housing costs as high as they are, that's leaving many more moderate and low-income families behind.
8: Schuster says the state needs to do a better job informing home buyers of help that's available, and more money is needed to expand initiatives like down payment assistance. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simon Rios.
0: State lawmakers are introducing a bill to give food and cash benefits to some low-income immigrant families. The $18 million plan would provide basic necessities to an estimated 15,000 people in the state. Legal residents who are on a path to citizenship would qualify. Advocates say the bill would help keep those individuals out of the state's emergency shelter systems. Poor air quality has been a major concern in the Boston area this year, especially with the Canadian wildfire smoke this summer. A new study led by Riel researchers finds that overall air quality in the U.S. is getting better. But as Michaela Savitt reports, some racial groups still suffer disproportionate health impacts from bad air. The study
23: examines more than a decade of data. Dr. Kai Chen with the Yale School of Public Health found cardiac-related deaths from long-term exposure to air pollution were over three times more common among black people than white people. He says America needs more equitable policies to reduce air pollution for everyone.
10: Among all the great work we have done, like the Clean Air Act, that has been tremendously successful in lowering the air pollution in the United States, we might need to think a little bit differently to have targeted
9: strategies to reduce more pollution.
23: Research shows Black people are more predisposed to heart disease from health, geographical and social factors, in addition to quality of care. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Michaela Savitt. There will be
0: shuttle bus service to Somerville's What the Fluff Festival later this month. The T is shutting down the Green Line branch to Union Square for three weeks beginning Monday. Originally, the T said it would not provide replacement shuttles despite the big annual event. The Boston Globe reports the state agreed to provide the shuttles following an outcry from Somerville business leaders. It's 7.34.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues.
0: Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Red Sox got swept by the Yankees in yesterday's doubleheader. Boston lost the early game three to two, then lost the nightcap four to one. The teams will play again tonight. The New England Revolution have named a new interim head coach. Clint P. A. will lead the team. He replaces interim coach Richie Williams. Williams took over when former coach Bruce Arena was placed on leave in July. Arena has since resigned. The rainy weather continues today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms, and there is a flood watch in effect. We'll have. With highs in the mid 70s. Tonight it fl- falls to the mid 60s and more showers are possible. Tomorrow it dries up for a mostly sunny day with highs in the mid 70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR.
6: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudil in Washington, D.C.
10: May Martinez in Culver City, California. One of the biggest gatherings of tech Titans in recent memory takes place on Capitol Hill today. The focus artificial intelligence. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates will be among the more than 20 business leaders and others going to meet with senators behind closed doors. Here Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer previewing what he's dubbed the first of his bipartisan
2: AI insight forums. All of these groups, together in one room talking about how and why Congress must act, what questions to ask, and how to build a consensus for safe innovation
10: the meeting is part of a series of gatherings led by Schumer and a bipartisan group of senators to craft AI law. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales uh, is here. So uh, Claudia, who's got an invite to this thing?
23: So all 100 senators are invited to attend and we're going to see more than 20 guests to invite them each individually. There will be two sessions held today, one in the morning, another in the afternoon. And a source familiar with the planning tells me each session will last about two Two to three hours. And now, as they each address the senators, and you mentioned a few um, others will include the current and ex CEOs of Google, plus the CEOs of Microsoft and IBM. Also, the leaders of several AI companies will be there, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, who's behind ChatGPT. And we'll also see labor and entertainment leaders attending as well. All right, what are they going to be talking about? So I reached out to a vast majority of the guests attending today, and I heard from a few who say they'll talk about their concerns for regulating AI or the need to protect certain groups. For example, in a preview shared with NPR, IBM CEO Arvind Krishna will push for the regulation of AI risk, but not its algorithms. So making AI creators and deployers accountable and supporting innovation meanwhile the head of the afl cio liz schuler said in a statement to us that workers must be central to any ai policy and can't be quote guinea pigs in an ai live experiment so we're expecting that there could be vigorous and perhaps even heated discussions because of the diversity of the individuals in that room today including high profile figures such as musk and zuckerberg
10: ooh a capitol hill cage match that's what i'm hearing
23: (laughs) Well, we hope not. But we can't forget <laughs> that at one point, Musk and Zuckerberg were in talks for such a cage match. Yeah. And Zuckerberg called it off after claiming that Musk wasn't setting a date. That said, I reached out to both, and I haven't heard back if that discussion could pick back up today.
10: Maybe the Coliseum in Rome is just booked first <laughs> something. Now, okay, so how do these meetings then today play into the larger effort by Congress to regulate artificial intelligence? Does this get them any closer?
23: Well, these forums are a broader discussion. They entail more forward-looking talks on possible legislative paths ahead, but Congress historically has failed to regulate emerging tech. Look at social media today, for example, and it's trying to play catch up now once again with AI. And there's a real lack of expertise in both law and computer science on the Hill for both members and staff. Then add a bitterly divided Congress, and that does not bode well for the future of regulating AI.
10: Yeah, tech always seems to move really fast. That's NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales. Thanks a lot.
6: Thank you. A two-week manhunt for Pennsylvania prison escapee Danilo Cavalcante continues this morning. So far, he's evaded hundreds of police and other law enforcement officials searching for him in suburbs and wooded areas. Police say Cavalcante, who was convicted of murdering his former girlfriend in 2021, is now considered, quote, armed and extremely dangerous, unquote, after he stole a rifle on Monday. For more, we're now joined by CNN reporter Danny Freeman, who's been covering the story. Good morning, Danny.
1: Good morning, Layla. How you doing?
6: I'm doing well. So what's the latest on the manhunt right now?
1: Well, Leila, I'm sitting right now at uh, the intersection of State Route 100 and State Route 23. We're on the northeasternmost edge of this now massive perimeter that law enforcement has set up on day 14 of this manhunt for Danilo Cavalcante. It was a relatively quiet night in terms of this ongoing search. Uh, Like you mentioned, uh, over the course of the day yesterday, there were as many as 500 law enforcement officers combing the area after that big revelation that we learned that Cavalcante has now Obtained a weapon and is considered not only extremely dangerous, but also armed. Yeah. Uh, at this point, police are basically walking through this large area of woods with horseback, armored vehicles, helicopters, all trying to bring this man in.
6: You mentioned this rifle that he now has. I mean, how much of a danger does he now present to the public?
1: Listen, Layla. the Pennsylvania State Police, they have always maintained that mm-hmm. Cavalcante has been extremely dangerous. Remember, he was convicted of murder just last month here in Pennsylvania, uh, a murder that he committed back in 2021. It was a fairly brutal murder. He stabbed his ex-girlfriend uh, 38 times in front of her two children, but he's also wanted for murder uh, in Brazil for a murder that happened back in 2017. Mm-hmm. So police have always considered him uh, a threat to the community community that he has been in when he's uh, since he's been on the run. But this new development, like you said, of him obtaining obtaining a rifle clearly has changed the tone, not just for the police's warning to the community, but also for the troopers themselves and law enforcement agents themselves who are, again, combing through dense, uh, uh, intense brush and uh, heavily uh, wooded areas. You know They now have to worry about this man holding a rifle out there in the wilderness. You mentioned 500
6: 500- law enforcement officers combing through the area. And this one man has eluded police law enforcement for two weeks. How has he done this?
1: You know, that's the million-dollar question, and we keep asking that of Pennsylvania State Police, and, you know, they say a few things. First, uh, this is now the second uh, true perimeter that we have seen uh, set up to try and uh, cage Cavalcante in during this manhunt. Uh, And the Pennsylvania State Police uh, Lieutenant Colonel who's been leading this charge, George Bivens, he says, listen, no perimeter is ever going to be 100% foolproof. So that's the first part. But the second part is that, as I started to describe earlier, the terrain here in Chester County is really challenging. There are a number of, as I said, densely wooded areas. There are creeks. There are cornfields uh, in many cases. And there are a lot of places, simply the police say, where Cavalcante can hide. And that makes this search incredibly difficult. By the way, the intense heat has been a challenge for police Mm. and also rainstorms that have come through over the past two weeks, including just this morning, uh, add to the challenge as well.
6: That's CNN reporter Danny Freeman. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Wednesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we get the details on the impeachment inquiry into corruption by President Biden, announced by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday. Mid-70s today with showers and thunderstorms likely, and those may bring heavy rain at times. Mid-60s tonight with more showers possible, then mostly sunny tomorrow in the mid-70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our
24: listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC
0: SIPC. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for a congressional investigation into Elon Musk that follows claims that the space... SpaceX CEO denied Ukraine's military access to SpaceX's Starlink internet services. Bloomberg reports the denial prevented an attack on Russian warships last year. Warren says the investigation needs to happen because foreign policy should be conduct- conducted by the government and, quote, not by one billionaire. The city of Worcester wants to end a tax break it granted to the Tennessee-based insurer Unum Group. The tax break requires Unum to maintain at least 300 full-time jobs at its Worcester property, but Worcester city manager says the company has not kept up with that promise. It's 745.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station,
6: it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin And I'm Martinez.
10: If you've been feeling sticker shock from the price of auto insurance, you are not alone. Prices have jumped about 18 percent in the last year, far outpacing overall inflation. So what's driving the increase and what can car owners do to save money? Here's NPR's Scott Horsley.
22: It's hard to remember now, but many car owners actually got rebates on their auto insurance a few years ago. Prices plunged during the lockdown early months of the pandemic, when many cars sat parked for weeks. By the time people ventured back out on the road, a lot of them seemed to forget how to drive safely. Sean Kevlin, who heads the Insurance Information Institute, says the number of deadly accidents jumped sharply in late 2020 and early 21. During that time of the pandemic, people picked up some risky habits. And we haven't seen those risky habits really go away, even though we have more people on the road. Fatal accidents have come down in the last year, but they're still more common than they were before the pandemic. At the same time, Kevlin says, the cost of repairing and replacing cars has been going up. So a lot of factors weighing in there, replacement costs, inflation. When you have increased risk, the price of that insurance will go up. That hasn't stopped insurance companies from trying to win more business, though, as you know if you watch any TV.
4: What are you wearing, Jake from State Farm?
22: Uh, khakis.
4: I can't believe how easy
0: it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with Geico. Go.
14: And your cut-rate car insurance might not pay for all of this. So get all Allstate and be better protected from mayhem.
22: Grace Arnold's kids know all the insurance company advertising jingles, and it's no wonder she oversees the Minnesota insurance market and serves on the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Arnold says natural disasters, fueled in part by climate change, are also driving up insurance costs, and not just in states like Florida or California.
5: We see a lot of
25: hail damage and consistently have billion-dollar storms in Minnesota, even if they don't have the
26: 24-hour hurricane watch going ahead of
22: them. Arnold says insurance regulators have to strike a balancing act, keeping premiums low enough for drivers to afford, but high enough to allow insurance companies to keep paying claims. California consumer watchdog Harvey Rosenfield's a longtime critic of the insurance industry. He admits the cost of repairing and replacing cars has gone up, but says that's not the whole story. What people really
8: don't understand is that insurance companies make most of their money by investment of our premiums. And when they run into trouble, they have a scapegoat system set up where they blame something else for the fact that they need to raise their rates because they want to offset their investment losses. That is how the industry works.
22: The insurance industry says even with the sharp rise in premiums, companies are still paying out more money in claims than they're collecting from customers. Investment income helps to make up the difference. In most states, car owners are required to have auto insurance, so it pays to shop around. Some insurers will offer a discount to drivers who bundle their auto and home insurance or who install an app on their phone so the company can track their driving. Opting for a higher deductible can also save money but Minnesota Commissioner Grace Arnold cautions against gambling with too little insurance.
25: I find it helpful to think of a couple of examples. You know, If I had my car stolen, what would that mean for me? If I was in an accident, what would that mean for me? The last thing you want to do is to be surprised by something that you thought was different.
22: Arnold says her office gets some complaints from drivers about the rising cost of auto insurance, but more often she hears from those who are disappointed with what they consider a skimpy payout when they file a claim. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
10: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, one of the NFL's biggest stars will likely miss the rest of the season after tearing his Achilles tendon early in his, game's first regular season, in his team's first regular season game. It's 7.50.
26: $24 billion of pandemic era childcare funding expires at the end of this month. Providers nationwide say they'll have to raise tuition, reduce class sizes, or shut their doors. 3.2 million children could lose their childcare as a result of this money going away. How to save childcare, the people who provide it, and the families who rely on it. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Massachusetts is under a state of emergency because of catastrophic flooding in Leominster and North Attleboro. The White House is rejecting claims of abuse of power and corruption by President Biden after a promise of an impeachment inquiry by House Republicans. And the CDC is recommending new COVID booster shots for anyone six months and older. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston
17: College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or
0: hybrid, bc.edu slash msae. There's a flood watch in effect through tomorrow morning, and we'll see more showers and thunderstorms today with rain that may be heavy at times. It'll be in the mid-70s. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s, and more showers are possible. Tomorrow it clears up for a mostly sunny day in the mid-70s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston.
11: WBUR supporters include Mass TLC's Board Ready Boot Camp. Now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey masstlc.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shunoy. If you're new to Boston, you probably just survived the move-in process. So now it's time to think about settling in and finding your community— that can be hard. So here at WBUR, we've put together a new project that makes it easier to become a Bostonian. It's called The Field Guide to Boston, and we've got two of the people who led the effort to create it in the studio this morning. Megan McGinnis is our assistant managing editor for newsletters, and Amelia Mason is a senior arts and culture reporter. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Megan, let's start with you. How did this guide come about?
5: Well, uh, Lisa Kramer, who is the managing editor for Digital, and I both have had this dream for a few years to have a series of guides that help people navigate the city that are kind of told by the people who live here. Um, I just moved actually out of the city to the Burbs, and one of the things that I've been grappling with is how to feel connected to a community and to find my people, and The best way that I've been doing that is by asking my neighbors where they go. And that's the same thing applies when we're talking about Boston and trying to just find our
0: people. Yeah, so many people are talking about the need to be connected now, especially after the pandemic. And this online guide, it's so comprehensive. It has sections for each neighborhood. How do you imagine people using the guide? I mean, I think it could be whether you've
5: lived in Boston for a long time or you're new, whether you're going just to an individual neighborhood guide, like I um, helped with reporting for Alston and Brighton, just to figure out where is a good place to find peace in your neighborhood? Where is a good place to grab a bite? But then we also have many other guides that are about finding your friends, whether you're a gamer, you're into fitness, like where should you go? What clubs or um, intramural activities are available to you? Um, and then there's an arts and culture guide that Amelia wrote that is phenomenal and... It's
0: extremely s- comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the understatement of the year. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, what should we know if we are newcomers about arts and culture in Boston?
26: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I I say is we punch above our weight in the sense that, like, Boston technically isn't that large physically. And um, I think we get compared to New York a lot unfairly just because of proximity. And that place is like a huge, you know, cultural juggernaut. But, like... We have three incredible art museums, just to start, like huge institutions that have amazing collections and a different angle on each one. And you can just literally start there. But um, there's also tons of free ones. And so one of the things that I think is great about these guys is they do highlight the places that you can just go without having to have a membership, without having to shell out a lot of money. Is it too big of a question to ask what are some of the surprising things that you learned during this whole process? I would say um, I learned a lot of history that I didn't know, even in the neighborhood, guys. Just at the top we have, like, a description of the neighborhood, and every single one that we wrote, you kind of started at the beginning. When was it annexed to the city? Like, why is it called that? Why is West Roxbury, like, not touching Roxbury, for example? All that those little kind of, like, I don't know, quirky things about the city. They often go deep and they go back into history and and people love those stories. Mm -hmm. I think that's... The perfect uh, way that we've been phrasing it is like the weird and the
5: wonderful. Hmm. So, for example, if you go to the WBUR Instagram page right now, you'll see a reel that is all about why people are obsessed with black raspberry ice cream here. Mm -hmm. And that feels just like so fun, but it's so true. It is a flavor that you really don't see very often outside of New England. And we're like, why is that? So we just kind of dove in.
0: What were some of the things that people told you were really challenging about moving to Boston, and and how did you try to address that in the guide?
26: Yeah, I mean, we before we even started, we put out a call uh, for folks to talk to us kind of like on background about their experiences so we would know – What to do research on, you know, and what to include. And I spoke to a number of people. And definitely when they move here, I think the hardest thing, as Megan referenced earlier, is just finding friends and finding community. And people were really like vulnerable and honest in those interviews, um, and talked a lot about what they did to try to meet people, what worked and what didn't, and kind of uh, the sort of psychological approach that it takes to put yourself out there. Um, And I think we gave some good advice. Um, You know, there's no quick fix, but there's a lot of really interesting subcultures to explore, and there's some good tips.
5: And navigating the seasons was another huge one for people. Um, Understanding how to keep your home warm and different rebates and offerings that we have for heating and how to take dress for warmth. Also, I think Amelia did a great job in this guide of kind of leaning into winter can be hard or it can be awesome if you think about reframe it and (laughs) lean into the fun parts of winter. How are you keeping this? I, I know you want this to be a living document.
0: How are you keeping it updated?
5: Yeah, so we actually are asking people to let us know what we missed. We are under (laughs) no um, premise that we have uh, understood everything about each neighborhood or that we've discovered everything there is to see. We want to hear from you, so let us know if there's some spots or ideas that we missed in any
0: of our guides. WBUR's Megan McGinnis and Amelia Mason, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about this. Thank you. Thank you. Check out the field guide to Boston at wbr.org slash field guide. You'll find everything we talked about there, and you can sign up for the newsletter to get tips straight to your inbox.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Mathworks.com. Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. Salemstate.edu slash graduate.
0: UN says at least 30,000 people have been displaced by flooding in Libya. The death toll has surpassed 5,100 and is expected to rise. It's Wednesday, September 13th. This is W.B.M.R.'s Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chanoi. Coming up, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy calls for an impeachment inquiry into President Biden without giving many specifics.
8: These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption they warrant further investigation.
0: The White House is rejecting those claims. Plus, we learn about some of the more than 30 ballot questions that could be decided by Massachusetts voters next year, including one that would allow rent control.
8: It would empower our cities and towns to bring everyone to the table to craft tenant protections that can work on the local level.
0: And this hour, the FDA finds a common ingredient in cold and allergy medication doesn't actually work. Rain today in the 70s, It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House is criticizing the decision by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NPR's Tamara Keith has more. A White House spokesman
21: says the impeachment inquiry is extreme politics at its worst. And while the president hasn't personally weighed in yet, he is plowing forward with the sort of bipartisan agenda items he has said he hoped could unite a divided Washington. Like curing cancer, he set to hold a meeting of his so-called Cancer Cabinet. The White House also remains focused on trying to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the month, as some House Republicans push for steep spending cuts that break with an earlier agreement. In the evening, Biden is scheduled to attend a campaign fundraiser in Northern Virginia, the sort of event where he often offers more candid thoughts on political news of the day. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Russia's President Vladimir
3: Putin welcomed North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un at a space launch facility in Russia's far east today with talks reportedly focused on military equipment Putin needs in his ongoing war with Ukraine. NPR's Charles Maines has more.
13: Putin made clear once again in comments this week he sees this war as grinding on over the long haul. So um, indeed, if, as it appears, uh, Russia is after North Korean arms, the question is what does Kim want in return? Uh, Putin addressed this issue head on when asked by a russian reporter he said this is that's why we're here at this cosmodrome so at least part of the answer seems to be north korea wants russian advanced technology
3: Pierce Charles Maines reporting. An FDA panel says a common decongestant in many over-the-counter cold medicines doesn't work. The agency says it has to decide whether the 250 products, including Sudafed and others that include the decongestant, should be pulled off the shelves or forced to change their ingredient list. But the panel says it's not dangerous. It just doesn't work. Rising gas prices likely pushed inflation a bit higher last month. And Pierre Scott Horsley has a preview of this morning's cost of living report.
22: The report from the Labor Department is expected to show consumer prices in August were up about 3.6 percent from a year ago. That's a bigger annual increase than the month before. Rising gasoline prices account for most of the acceleration. Airfares also may have jumped as a result of rising jet fuel prices. So-called core inflation, on the other hand, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, is expected to be flat or down in August. That would reinforce expectations that the Federal Reserve will leave interest rates unchanged when policymakers meet next Next week. Average wages in August were up 4.3 percent from a year ago, likely outpacing inflation and boosting workers' real buying power. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
3: U.S. futures contracts are trading flat. Dow futures are down a fraction. S&P 500 futures also down a fraction. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Massachusetts is under a state of emergency this morning. That's because of serious flooding in the areas of Leominster and North Attleboro. More than 10 inches of rain fell there on Monday night. Governor Healy says the declaration will allow the state to free up more resources for recovery.
27: We continue to work on ongoing repairs and restoration here. Uh, We're going to continue to find ways to support people um, here in the region and across the state. And we want to do
6: everything we can to take steps necessary to reduce the likelihood of damage with respect to any weather that may come over the next few days.
0: Schools are closed again today in Leminster, and commuter rail trains are being replaced by buses on the Fitchburg line between Wachusett and Shirley because of damage to the tracks. Embattled Boston city councilors Ricardo Arroyo and Kendra Lara are the first incumbents in decades to lose in the preliminary elections. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more on yesterday's results.
8: Unofficial vote totals show Lara and Arroyo lost by wide margins. Both were once rising Democratic stars in the city. But Lara faced questions after crashing her car into a house this summer while her license was suspended. Arroyo faced allegations of sexual assault and election meddling, though he claimed no wrongdoing. Voter narrate Cruz of Hyde Park said she couldn't support Arroyo after that.
7: I've had enough of what I've seen on TV, on the news. And um, that enough made me come out here and say, you know what, I think I'm going to choose differently this time around.
8: Enrique Pepin and Jose Ruiz will compete in November for Arroyo's seat. Benjamin Weber and William King will vie for Lara's district. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: Greater Boston residents don't believe the MBTA is safe, and they say service isn't great either. That's according to a new poll released today by the Mass Inc. polling group. WBUR's Zaninjor and Wameka reports.
27: 70 percent of current and former riders who responded to the survey say they feel unsafe on the T due to the condition of buses, trains and stations and less than half rate the T's services as at least good. Rich Parr of Mass Inc. says these findings are consistent with the infrastructure and safety issues the system has faced.
1: a good number of people who are who have experience with the system, there is some concern about safety in this survey, and I think that that's a good place for the T to start uh, in terms of in terms of trying to win people back.
27: Respondents are divided about the future of the T. Forty-five percent think the system will get better, while about the same amount think it will stay the same or
0: get worse. For ninety-point-nine WBUR, I'm zaninjor and Wameka. A new report finds that at least 129 foster children in Massachusetts have been sheltered in apartments. The Department of Children and Families says it's been using apartments because of staff shortages. They say the shortages have made it harder to provide beds in a group setting for kids who need a higher level of care. The apartments are in Boston, Springfield, and New Bedford. Critics tell the Boston Globe they're worried the housing situation traumatizes kids. It's 8:07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting
17: advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and
0: civil society. More information is available at foundation.org The Red Sox were swept by the Yankees in yesterday's doubleheader at Fenway. Boston fell in the afternoon game 3-2, to then lost at night 4-1. to The teams play again tonight. The entire region is under a flood watch through tomorrow morning. Rain will move in later this morning. Some of it could be heavy at times. It'll be in the mid-70s. More rain is possible overnight. It'll be in the 60s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the 70s again. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila
6: Faldil in Washington, D.C.
10: And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Under pressure from far-right Republicans in his party, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has announced a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden.
8: These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives.
6: House Republicans have already been investigating the Biden family for months and so far haven't found any clear evidence of corruption. The White House dismissed the investigation as extreme politics at its worst.
10: NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Susan, now that it's a formal inquiry, what changes?
21: You know, there isn't anything dramatically different today than there was yesterday. These investigations have been and will continue to be run by two Republicans, James Comer of Kentucky and Jim Jordan of Ohio. Republicans say that they hope the seriousness and the weight of an impeachment inquiry will prod the White House to be more forthcoming with things like document requests and requests for testimony. But all of that obviously remains to be seen.
8: Okay,
10: so what exactly are Republicans alleging about the president?
21: Well, McCarthy outlined yesterday that Republicans are going to focus the inquiry on any of Biden's official interactions with his son's former business and specifically work with foreign clients like Burisma, that's the former Ukrainian energy company. They also want to look at money that's been paid to Biden family members for work they've done with foreign entities, as well as whether Hunter has been given any special treatment by the Justice Department in their ongoing investigation of him. Altogether, Republicans believe they can paint this picture of corruption against Joe Biden, But again, there hasn't really been any concrete evidence that they can point to yet in attempting to make this case that the president benefited financially or his family did from official actions.
10: Now, if the House were to pass these articles of impeachment, uh, it would force the Senate to, to hold a trial. So what's been the GOP Senate reaction to that possibility?
21: It was pretty lukewarm on Capitol Hill yesterday. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has previously voiced some skepticism about the merits of moving ahead with an impeachment process. Yesterday, he essentially said the Senate's just going to focus on the legislative agenda and wait and see what the House does. Mitt Romney, he's one of the seven Senate Republicans who voted to convict former President Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. He said he thought there was enough there to merit an investigation, but that the case had not yet been made for an impeachment.
10: There's been no allegation of a high crime or misdemeanor that would meet the constitutional test. So that's a very different matter. And we'll see if that arises.
21: There's almost no chance any of this ends in a Senate conviction. The Senate is controlled by Democrats. And skepticism from senators like Romney, who would be in the orbit of potentially uh, gettable senators, I think makes that pretty clear.
10: Yeah, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that Kevin McCarthy made this announcement at least uh, as one member of his party, Matt Gates of Florida, was threatening to force a vote to remove him from the speaker's office if he didn't make this exact move. Right.
21: Right, and it doesn't come from a move that makes the speaker look particularly strong in his job at this moment. All of this is going to be a test for McCarthy, not just how he manages an impeachment inquiry, but also how he's going to avoid a government shutdown in a way that doesn't provoke a revolt from other far-right members of his conference who might try to remove him for the job depending on what spending bills he brings to the floor and what they have in them. So how he navigates all of this and whether he can uh, succeed and also keep his job is, is going to dominate Capitol Hill in the weeks and certainly the months ahead.
10: NPR political correspondent Susan Davis, thanks for keeping track of this. You're welcome. Officials in Libya say the bodies of more than 2,000 people have been recovered in the city of Derna.
6: A storm devastated towns and cities along the coast of northeastern Libya. It ruptured dams caused a torrent of water to flood entire neighborhoods. And already, Libya is decimated by more than a decade of conflict, and it's a country
10: divided
6: between two rival governments.
10: For more on how that may complicate the recovery, we're joined now by NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Ruth, what can you tell us about the scale of the disaster?
4: Well, you know, a how bad this is is really becoming clear just now, days after the storm. So with phone lines down and the chaos caused by the destruction, information has been hard to get. But Anas al-Gamati, who's the director of the Sardik Institute, a Libyan think tank, he's been getting a picture from residents inside Derna city. And he called the scale of the damage epic and said it's like nothing Libya has seen in its modern history.
26: It's torn through half the city. A quarter of it's still submerged in water. Images and videos that are coming out are people who have left their home and are wandering the steep. have stopped looking at the streets and they're now all just facing the ocean looking for bodies that might emerge. They've loved ones and friends and family. It's, it's horrific.
4: Health officials say more than 2,000 corpses have been collected as of this morning in the city and rescuers expect that toll to rise still. There's footage showing bodies filling a yard of a hospital and more videos showing mass graves as well.
10: Wow, what an awful, awful picture. I mean, how is the rescue going so far?
4: Well, you know, the problem is access to the affected areas has been so hard with roads cut off. There was very little help to get to Derna for the first 36 hours after the storm. Now responders are in the city. Faraj Al-Hassi of the Libyan Red Crescent, he's in the organization's emergency response room and he told me they're getting calls from people still stranded in the storm debris or trapped under the rubble. And they're also looking at how to cope with all of those that have lost their homes.
20: We are estimating the numbers of the, the, people, of the
9: 20, people will be IDPs, more than 20,000 people will be internally displaced. Our rescue team are currently working close the hour, uh, conducting rescues and research.
4: Yeah, so he's saying, you know, more than 20,000 people have become internally displaced by this situation. So it's a huge challenge for rescue services in a country that's already torn up by war.
10: Yeah, tell us more about that. Uh, how, how could that possibly affect the scale of this disaster?
4: Well, you know, this is a country that's been devastated by conflict since 2011, when rebels backed by NATO removed the dictator, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Now the country is ruled by rival governments. And all of this has left it impoverished and lacking in services. And in this context, the dams broke that caused the flood in Derna simply hadn't been maintained and they'd become worn down and flimsy. And you have to add to this picture that meteorologists say this storm was of a particular strength. There was 16 inches of rain dumped on eastern Libya in a short time. But they say the intensity of the storm fits with a pattern of more extreme weather caused by man-made climate change. So that's a new dimension that Libya may now have to keep facing in the future as well.
10: NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Ruth, thank you.
4: Thank you very much.
10: A key ingredient found in dozens of cold and allergy medicines is not effective. Now, that's the conclusion of a panel of FDA advisors that met yesterday. This could affect many of the best known over the counter brands, including Sudafed, Benadryl, and NyQuil. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now. Allison, so what's this ingredient in question?
19: Good morning, A. Well, the ingredient is called phenylephrine. And actually, the idea that phenylephrine, when taken orally, doesn't work is not new. Going back to 2015, there was a citizen's petition to remove phenylephrine from the -the over-the-counter drugs in the U.S., Back then, researchers had studies showing that as an oral decongestant, it's completely ineffective. Uh, I spoke to a scientist who's been behind this effort for years, Leslie Hendelis of the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. He explained to me that phenylephrine gets inactivated by enzymes in the gut. Less than 1% of what you swallow actually gets into the blood, so it never reaches your nose.
8: If your problem is a stuffy nose and you take medicine that has phenylephrine, you will still have a stuffy nose. That's what the science shows. It doesn't work any better than a placebo. So you're wasting your money.
19: He says it's generally safe because it does not get absorbed, but sometimes it's formulated in combination with other products like Tylenol. If you have a stuffy nose, you want something to relieve that. You may not need or want a fever reducer. So bottom line, it's not effective. And there was unanimous agreement among the FDA advisors who voted yesterday.
10: My dad has been in agreement for <laughs> for years. Ah, he is so vindicated <laughs> he by this, yeah. Out. Yeah. So how okay so how is it then that a completely ineffective ingredient ended up in all these medicines over the counter medicines?
19: Well, there's a really interesting uh, history. Back in the early 2000s, legislation was passed aimed at combating methamphetamine use. Professor Randy Hatton, also of the College of Pharmacy at the University of Florida, told me that the passage of that law pushed many products with pseudoephedrine, which can be processed into meth, behind the counter. And so in order to maintain sales, he says the -the over-the-counter medicines were reformulated with phenylephrine, which scientists now know to be an ineffective ingredient.
1: I started getting a rash of calls like saying, does oral phenylephrine work or what is the right dose of oral phenylephrine? Because people are complaining that the products they used to use, they had two in them no longer work.
19: And that's what set him and Leslie Handelis off on this long journey <laughs> to get to the bottom of this. All right. So
10: then what happens now? I mean, can these advisors tell the agency what to do?
19: Well, the FDA is not obligated to follow the recommendations of an advisory committee, but I spoke to Dr. Caleb Alexander of Johns Hopkins University. He's an internist and epidemiologist. He says there's not any scientific controversy here.
4: You have an
8: advisory committee that's provided a unanimous recommendation, and you have multiple rigorous, well-controlled scientific studies that show that this product really is no better than a sugar pill and it's in nobody's interest to
28: have a product that doesn't work on the market
19: So now the agency could force manufacturers to remove these products from the market. And Dr. Alexander says if that happens, it would upset the markets. There's nearly $2 billion in annual sales of these over-the-counter medicines. But he says the markets would adjust. And the good news is that there are other over-the-counter medicines that are effective as nasal decongestants, including nasal sprays. So people would have... Alternative options, eh? All
10: right, at least there's that. NPR's Alison Aubrey, thanks (laughs) a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chenoy. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, why the rapid rise in CEO pay has become a sticking point between automakers and union workers in their ongoing contract negotiations. It's 819.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org.
24: The kitchen. It's the nerve center of most homes, representing abundance and love, or scarcity and stress.
7: So it's all this complicated stuff, but so many things in life come
24: right back to the kitchen. Journalist Michelle Norris explores that complicated stuff with a question, tell me about your mama's kitchen. Hear what she found out
1: on
0: All Things Considered from NPR News.
8: Listen again after four today on 90.9
12: WBUR.
0: Discover and rediscover the place we call home with WBUR's new field guide to Boston. Whether you've been here forever or just arrived, the field guide connects you to boston's neighborhoods people and history find it at wbur.org slash field guide showers and thunderstorms likely today some may produce heavy rain and there's a flood watch in effect through tomorrow morning we'll have high temperatures near 75 tonight more showers possible otherwise cloudy with a low around 65 tomorrow it finally clears up for a mostly sunny day with a high near 75 right now it's 69 degrees in boston support for npr comes from the station and from
17: EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Merative. Learn more at dynamedx.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
6: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila
10: Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. One of the NFL's biggest stars tore his Achilles tendon very early in Monday night's game. It was quarterback Aaron Rodgers' first regular season appearance with the New York Jets just months after joining the team. And now it seems his season and maybe his professional football career may be over. For more we're joined now by Jesse Washington of ESPN's Anscape. Jesse, Aaron Rodgers, future Hall of Famer. Uh, HBO's Hard Knocks got Jet Nation all hyped up. Uh, his season now done. What was your reaction to the injury?
15: Man, first thing was Jay-Z's line, grand opening, grand closing. But then I felt a little <laughs> bad because nobody wants anybody to to get no. injured. And 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 I want to see him play. I was excited, but... By the time I tuned into the Jets game on Monday night, he was already out for the season. So pretty disappointing.
10: Yeah, And it's hard for a 29 year old to get over an Achilles tendon. Rogers is 39. I mean, what does this mean for this career?
15: Man, we do not know. And it's pretty scary. You know, my Achilles hurts right now. And all I did was play some pickup basketball (laughs) on Saturday. So it's a tremendously difficult injury to overcome at that age. But He's a top-level athlete. He's overcome a lot of other obstacles. He's got the best treatment available in the world. And so my bet is that he will probably be back on the field in green next season. Yeah, I can kind of see that
10: because, you know, so much was made over his departure from Green Bay to the New York Jets, and he never got to really fulfill any of the promise. So, yeah, I I can see, Jesse, how he'd want to at least play one season for them.
15: I mean, this was— one of, if not the dominant storylines in the NFL this season. And the NFL and all professional sports are about storylines and narratives and these grand sweeping things that we're going to follow over the course of uh, a year. In this case, maybe two. The other thing is that he's a competitor, man. You don't get to be a four-time MVP. You don't get to be a Super Bowl champion without really believing in yourself and overcoming long odds. You don't want to go out four minutes into your storied uh, move to a new franchise in the yeah. biggest city in the world. So I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going out like that.
10: But since we're talking sports, we can speculate. If this indeed is the end, uh, what's his legacy?
15: Hmm. His legacy will be as a great quarterback who was a little weird, you know? Um, this is a guy who says he's not an anti-vaxxer, but didn't get vaccinated and has, and has repeated some scientific untruths, shall we say. Um, This is a guy who came out as an appreciator and a user of ayahuasca, the hallucinogenic drug. And so there's some people who want to point at Aaron Rodgers and say, okay, ha ha, or, or make jokes about him getting injured in relation to these other stranger parts of his personality. But I think that we should really be careful with that, you know. Um, nobody wants to root for anybody to get injured. And also, recently in the Women's World Cup, Megan Rapino was um, targeted after missing a penalty kick, and there were, there were people on certain parts of the political spectrum yeah. who pointed a finger. We don't want to do that with Aaron Rodgers. I hope the guy heals up, comes back, throws some more touchdowns and completes whatever that completion is, the narrative of his career.
10: What does this mean for the Jets, though? Uh, We only got about 30 seconds because, uh, you know, Jesse, there is a seven time Super Bowl champion quarterback out there who's come out of retirement in the
15: past. His name rhymes
10: with bomb tradie.
15: (laughs) <laughs> man I hope that he stays retired I think the Jets got to suck it up man and make it through this season and see what can happen uh Zach Wilson nice young man was not the answer at quarterback last year and I don't believe he's the answer right now and
10: barely the answer on Monday night too yeah Jesse Washington of ESPN's Anscape Jesse thanks
15: thank you
6: the Biden administration has agreed to a prisoner swap with Iran. The deal will also give Tehran access to $6 billion of its own oil revenue. Some in Congress are warning that this will just encourage more Iranian hostage-taking, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports.
7: Five Americans are expected to be released as soon as next week, and the U.S. had to make some difficult decisions, according to State Department spokesman Matthew Miller. We
14: have to make tough choices and engage in tough negotiations to bring these American citizens home. There were five American citizens who have been uh, jailed under brutal conditions, one of them for more than eight years. And the secretary and the president decided that we need to do everything we can to bring them home, and that's what we're doing.
7: He's talking about American businessman Siamak Namazi, who was passed over in several previous prisoner swaps with Iran. Iran says that under this deal, it will get back five of its prisoners convicted in the U.S., mostly for sanctions violations. It will also get access to $6 billion that have been frozen in a bank account in South Korea. This is Iranian oil revenue, and Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, told NBC News that his country can use it however it wants. He spoke through an interpreter, making a point that the U.S. disputes.
25: This
20: money belongs to the Islamic Republic of Iran and naturally we will decide, the Islamic Republic of Iran will decide to to spend it wherever uh, we need it.
7: The Biden administration says that's not the case. Right now, the money is being moved from South Korea to Qatar. The Secretary of State issued a waiver so that banks will feel comfortable doing these transactions. Miller says once the $6 billion are in Qatar, they'll be put in a restricted account.
14: It will be uh, held there under strict oversight by the United States Treasury Department and the money can only be used for humanitarian purposes and uh, uh, we will remain vigilant in watching uh, uh, the spending of those funds and have the ability to uh, freeze them again if we need to.
7: House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall is not so sure. He says he's deeply concerned that the State Department issued a sanctions waiver to facilitate this transfer of funds. He says it creates a, quote, direct incentive for America's adversaries to conduct future hostage-taking. The Republican congressman also thinks the timing is, in his words, egregious. This week, Iranians mark one year since the death of a young woman at the hands of morality police, a killing that sparked mass. Massive protests in Iran and a fierce crackdown by authorities. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 50 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR's and or Mwameka tells us about the more than 30 ballot questions that could come before Massachusetts voters next year. It's 8:29. Join other runners at City Space on September 29th for a jog around the neighborhood and a conversation with leaders in the Boston running community. Free tickets are at wbrorg slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry and
24: Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com.
8: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A White House spokesman describes the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden as an evidence-free goose chase. NPR's Susan Davis says the inquiry was announced yesterday by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who cites the results of investigations by House committees into the foreign business dealings of the President's
21: son, Hunter Biden. These investigations have been and will continue to be run by two Republicans, James Comer of Kentucky and Jim Jordan of Ohio. Republicans say that they hope the seriousness and the weight of an impeachment inquiry will prod the White House to be more forthcoming with things like document requests and requests for testimony, but all of that obviously remains to be seen. Advisors to the Food and Drug Administration say the leading decongestant used by
8: millions of people in the U.S. doesn't work. It's found in over-the-counter versions of Sudafed and DayQuil, among other cold medicines. Dr. Purvi Parikh is an allergist at NYU Langone Health.
5: This ingredient, phenylephrine, is in so many different cold medicines. That's why it is important to kind of uh, educate yourself on what to look for and, and just avoid that ingredient.
8: Researchers have long questioned its effectiveness. The United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's Big Three automakers have less than 48 hours to reach agreement on new labor contracts before a potential strike. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Some of Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation are reacting to news of a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Congressman Seth Moulton is calling it, quote, political retribution. He says Republicans haven't provided any evidence that an impeachment inquiry is necessary. Congressman Jim McGovern says House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is opening the inquiry just to appease members of his party. Members of the Massachusetts National Guard today will begin providing help at emergency shelters across the state. Governor Healy activated up to 250 members of the Guard to assist with migrant families and people experiencing homelessness. National Guard Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Donnelly told WBUR's Radio Boston the Guard members will wear camouflage uniforms, which he believes sends an important message.
14: I think that's one of the things that we want to make sure that we put out there. We want to be out there uh, and and let the community, the the taxpayers know that, that we do good things.
0: Donnelly says he hopes Guard members show migrants that the U.S. is a compassionate society. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are demanding updates from the T about efforts to make the system safer. The letter, obtained by the Boston Globe, was sent to leaders at the MBTA and the Department of Public Utilities. That's a state agency that oversees the T. It asks them to lay out long-term solutions for issues like slow zones and derailments. Both senators say they plan to support the T in its efforts to improve. It's 833.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. Astreetframes.com.
0: It was a rough day for the Red Sox yesterday. They lost both games of a doubleheader to the Yankees at Fenway. Boston lost the early game 3-2. to Then they lost the late game 4-1. to That puts Boston and New York into a tie for last place. The teams will meet again tonight. The rainy weather continues today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms, and there is a flood watch in effect. We'll have highs in the mid-70s. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s, and more showers are possible. Tomorrow it dries up for a mostly sunny day with highs in the mid-70s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. dataiku.com. ucom And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
6: And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Five former Memphis police officers have been indicted on federal charges related to the death of Tyree Nichols. 29-year-old Nichols died in January days after being brutally beaten by the officers. Katie Reardon from member station WKNO is in Memphis and is following this story. Katie, thanks for being here. Good morning.
9: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. So just to be
6: clear, these are new charges against these five former officers
9: yes that's right earlier this year all five officers were dismissed from the police force and charged with second degree murder in state court they've all pleaded not guilty but yesterday the u.s department of justice announced these separate federal civil rights violations from the night of Nichols' arrest among other things the officers are accused of using excessive force prosecutors also say the officers did not take action to address Nichols' medical needs after beating him and taking him into custody That's even as it was clear Nichols' condition was worsening. It's also alleged the officers attempted to cover up these crimes by giving misleading and false statements. Here's Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark with the DOJ's Civil Rights Division speaking at a press conference.
27: When some officers violate the Constitution, when they use excessive force, when they ignore serious injuries inflicted on people they arrest, their actions erode
9: the public's trust. I did reach out to some of the attorneys for these former officers. One said that the officer he represents maintains his innocence and that he will continue to defend himself against all allegations. So these officers were
6: already facing serious charges, second degree murder in state car- court. What prompts these additional charges?
9: Federal prosecutors said they're prioritizing accountability and want to send a strong message that no one is above the law this is not the only place that they're stepping in to make that point. During the press conference, Clark noted that since January 2021, the DOJ has charged more than 100 cases of rights violations by law enforcement across the country.
27: In that same period, we obtained more than 86 convictions. We will never stop working to fulfill our duty to protect Americans from unlawful acts of police violence.
9: There's also a broader federal effort to scrutinize all policing in Memphis. In July, the Department of Justice announced the opening of something called a pattern or practice investigation of the Memphis Police Department. That allows them to determine if there are systemic problems with things like excessive use of force.
6: And you also heard from the Nichols family and their attorney, what did they say?
9: That's right. Uh, the family is represented by civil rights lawyer Ben Crump. At their separate press conference yesterday, Crump stressed that the DOJ under the Biden administration is putting police departments and officers on notice that misconduct will not be tolerated. We also heard directly from Nichols' mother, Rovonne Wells.
18: This is something that I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life, that I will not have my son, but... If my son had to leave this earth in this manner, I'm hoping it was for the greater good. Hmm.
9: She's often talked about this greater good, uh, referring to meaningful police reforms.
6: Wow. Katie Reardon from member station WKNO in Memphis. Thank you for your reporting, Katie.
9: Thanks for having me.
10: CEOs at the big three automakers have enjoyed big pay raises in recent years, so why not the workers? Well, that's the argument the United Auto Workers Union has put forward in asking for a 40% wage increase. Here's NPR's Andrea Hsu.
29: In making his case, UAW President Sean Fain offered a pointed comparison. GM CEO Mary Barra made almost $29 million in 2022. The starting wage at GM's EV battery plant, Ultium Cells, is $16.50 an hour.
11: That means a newly hired Ultium worker would have to work full-time for 16 years to earn what Mary Barra makes in a single
20: week.
29: Stratospheric CEO pay has been a point of contention for years. Now, it's taking center stage in labor talks, including those ongoing in Detroit. Auto workers are fed up that the rich are only getting richer while they have seen their real wages decline. According to the Labor Department, auto workers on the production line have seen wages drop by more than 20 percent over the past two decades when adjusted for inflation.
24: It's a lot more to it than the average person realizes.
29: Dania Ferdinandson builds transmissions for Chevy Silverados and other trucks at a GM plant in Ohio. This summer, she was earning $27 an hour, the same as what she was making when she was hired in 2016. While CEOs enjoy their luxury watches and second homes, she says, workers like her face tough choices.
24: We got to decide, are we going to pay our electric bill or, geez, Are we going to go over here and get this medication? I mean, we have to make decisions because our pay isn't
29: right. That discontent has been brewing since the union made huge concessions after the 2008 financial crisis brought the auto industry to its knees. Workers still feel that deeply today. The car companies, meanwhile, have not only recovered, they've seen their profits soar to the tune of $21 billion in the first half of this year alone.
24: What it is that we want, is not going to break the
29: bank. Decades of outrage over excessive CEO pay has led to some attempts at regulation. Since 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission has required publicly traded companies to disclose how much their CEOs make compared to their employees. GM last year disclosed that Mary Barra's compensation was 362 times that of the median worker at GM. Ford paid its CEO, Jim Farley, 281 times the median worker. And at companies and other industries, the gap is even greater.
30: Obviously, CEOs should be the highest paid person in an enterprise.
29: Josh Bivens is chief economist at the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute.
31: But then the question is exactly just how much higher than everyone else?
29: In 1965, CEOs made just 20 times what the typical worker made. But in the 1990s, their salaries became more tied to the stock market. And the stock market's massive gains led to lavish paydays.
1: That's not a dynamic that pulls up the wages of rank-and-file workers, obviously.
29: Well, as the auto talks near the strike deadline, the two sides still appear far apart. As of Friday, the largest offer on the table was a raise of 14.5% over four years, which UAW President Sean Fain called
11: deeply inadequate.
29: Now, the UAW has come down slightly on its wage demands, but expectations among its workers are high.
24: Blue-collar worker, the working class,
29: has had it. Dania Ferdinandson went through a GM strike in 2019, says it wasn't glamorous. But come Thursday at midnight, if there's no deal, she says, we're ready to walk out again. Andrea Hsu, NPR News.
10: This is NPR News.
0: You're listening to WBUR on a Wednesday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the impact of generative artificial intelligence is already having on workplaces in China and whether it's playing a role in that country's economic slowdown. Mid-70s today with showers and thunderstorms likely, and those may bring heavy rain at times. Mid-60s tonight with more showers possible, then mostly sunny tomorrow in the mid-70s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston.
11: WBUR supporters include Innuendo, now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control in hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo, Route 9, Natick, and Innuendo.com. Loomis Sales. Loomis Sales. Searching globally for value in both traditional and alternative investments to pursue attractive, sustainable returns for clients. LoomisSales.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.gov.
0: The new CEO of Newton-based LabShares has plans to franchise the company, which, as the name indicates, provides shared lab space. He tells the Boston Business Journal one of his plans moving forward is to open other locations in greater Boston and beyond. Vegans in Jamaica Plain will need to find a new place to get ice cream. The alternative ice cream chain FOMU says the Center Street Store never fully recovered from challenges brought on by the pandemic. It'll close on Monday. FOMU still has several other Boston locations. It's 844. We're funded
24: by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Rent control, psychedelics, and standardized tests. Those are just some of the topics that may be in front of Massachusetts voters next fall. 34 ballot measures passed the most recent hurdle and were certified by the state attorney general. But there are a few more steps in the process to get on the final ballot. WBUR senior business reporter Zaninjor Enwemeka is here to explain. Hi, Zaninjor.
27: Hi, Rupa. Good morning.
0: So can you start us out by telling us about some of the most widely watched ballot measures?
27: Sure. So I think there are a few topics that may you know, stir up some buzz, but let's start with rent control. There's a ballot question that would lift the state's ban on rent control. Now, interestingly, it was actually voters who banned rent control in the first place. That was also done through a ballot measure back in 1994. So the issue may circle back again to voters now. And it was State Representative Mike Connolly who filed this new ballot effort as a private citizen and renter in Cambridge. He says the measure would give cities and towns options to deal with housing issues and protect tenants.
8: It would empower our cities and towns to bring everyone to the table to craft tenant protections that can work on the local level. And and examples of that are rent control, rent stabilization, eviction protections, as well as regulations on upfront
28: costs, such as broker fees.
27: And to be clear, Connolly's initiative would not impose rent control or those other measures, but would give cities and towns the option to
0: do so. Okay, but I imagine there's opposition just to the idea of making rent control possible again.
27: Yeah, definitely. You know, some opponents say rent control would be a disaster for renters and property owners. Folks in the real estate industry certainly aren't happy about it. The Greater Boston Real Estate Board released a statement saying they believe the ballot question violates the state's constitution, and they call rent control a failed policy and believe there should be a focus on creating more housing.
0: How about the ballot question about standardized tests? Can you tell us about that?
27: Yes. So there are two questions that were certified on this, one from a mom in Lexington and one from the Massachusetts Teachers Association. That's the state's largest teachers union. Both of these questions would remove the requirement that students pass the MCAS exam in order to graduate from high school. Now, interestingly, Massachusetts is one of only eight states that requires this. Deb McCarthy, the vice president of the teachers union, says the measures won't eliminate the
29: exam. The MCAS will still be uh, given, but what it does is it allows us to recognize the learning profiles of all students. Now,
27: there are opponents of this ballot effort in the business community. They say MCAS scores predict long-term success and schools benefit from having a common
0: standard. We also mentioned psychedelics. Can you tell us about that and then maybe summarize some of the other roughly 30 ballot measures? So there
27: is a ballot measure to decriminalize psychedelics, Uh, A few of the other measures would require voter ID, increase the minimum wage for tipped workers, limit the state's gas tax, and give the state auditor the ability to audit the legislature. Now, voters may also get to decide whether Uber and Lyft drivers should be classified as independent contractors. This one's interesting. You know, that's how those drivers are currently classified, though there's been legal challenges to that over the years. And a similar ballot question was actually thrown out by the state's highest court just last year. And on the other side of that issue, advocates for years have been pushing for the drivers of these apps-based services to be considered employees so that they can get more benefits and protections. So there is an opposing ballot question that would allow drivers to unionize and bargain collectively for working conditions and pay.
0: So what do the backers of these ballot initiatives have to do now to try to get them on the final ballot?
27: Well, now they have to collect a bunch of signatures. The campaigns will need to collect over 74,500 signatures. They'll file that with local and state officials over the next few months. Then with enough signatures, the ballot measures will head to the legislature in January. Then lawmakers can approve, decline action or suggest changes. And after that there's another round of signature gathering and filing. So several more steps to go before we have those final ballot questions.
0: WB War, Senior Business Reporter, Zeninjor and Wameka. Thank you, Zeninjor. Sure, Rupa. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, plus a new look at the JFK assassination from a former Secret Service agent. It's 849.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu.
12: Are you new to Boston and wondering what a Charlie card is? Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. Our public transit system is called the MBTA, or the T for short. It was the first subway in the United States. It's even got an unofficial theme song.
20: Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. He put 10 cents in his pocket, kissed his wife and family.
12: It was a campaign song N-D-A. for a mayoral candidate in Boston back in 1949. Residents at the time were outraged that the T wanted to raise its fare prices. And this is where the Charlie card got its name. You use these plastic cards to pay for a ride and you could load it up at almost any subway or Silver Line station. To get more tips like this about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash Field Guide.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Massachusetts is in a state of emergency after heavy rains caused catastrophic flooding in Leominster and North Attleboro. Five former Memphis police officers have been charged with civil rights violations in the beating death of Tyree Nichols. And the Labor Department says consumer prices rose 3.7 percent last month compared to the year before, which experts say should keep the Fed from raising interest rates for now. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
24: WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
0: Showers and thunderstorms today. It'll be in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston
28: we're going to lead with this story, the billions of dollars spent on a medicine that an FDA panel says just doesn't work. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by
31: JLL, striving to be a commercial real estate partner that can create lasting change for good in business, communities, and the planet. JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by C3AI, C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI, this is Enterprise AI.
28: I'm David Brancaccio. First, there's word that inflation jumped six-tenths of a percent from July to August. About half of that was as expected. Fuel prices, year-over-year inflation is up 3.7%, where 2% is the central bank's fervent desire. Dow and S&P futures are down slightly. First, we also have New York City's pension funds and the state of Oregon are suing Fox Corporation. They say investors were hurt when Fox made itself vulnerable to defamation suits by broadcasting falsehoods about the 2020 presidential election. Here's Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer.
9: The
31: lawsuit says Fox invited defamation lawsuits by peddling known falsehoods, to quote Oregon's attorney general, Fox was sued by Dominion Voting Systems, eventually settling for millions of dollars. Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum says the board of Fox Corporation exposed shareholders to significant risks with its claims that election technology companies like Dominion rigged the 2020 election and that it didn't make any good-faith efforts to mitigate that risk. The attorney general says that eventually hurt investors because of the cost of the settlement. Rosenblum says as of last month, Oregon public employees held about $5 million worth of stock in Fox. New York City's pension funds hold millions more. Fox has not responded to a request for comment. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace.
28: People bought nearly 300 million packages of over-the-counter oral decongestants last year, according to the FDA. Turns out that a key ingredient in more than 80% of those simply doesn't work, according to a panel advising regulators, stuffy before, stuffy after. That means changes in the coughs and colds aisle, Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports.
30: At Mount Vernon Pharmacy in Baltimore, pharmacist Ellison Park was not surprised to hear the FDA panel found that phenylephrine is not effective as an oral decongestant.
8: Are you kidding me? <laughs> I never recommend that to anyone.
30: <laughs> Still, the FDA estimates that consumers spent $1.8 billion on phenylephrine decongestants last year. Steven Sondelmeier is a professor of pharmaceutical economics at the University of Minnesota. He says if the ingredient is banned...
9: The companies will
11: look to say, can we reformulate the product? And if we take phenylephrine out,
8: is there something else we can put in?
30: One possibility is pseudoephedrine. It used to be the main ingredient in many decongestants, but it can also be used to make methamphetamine. So now it's available behind the counter. And pharmacist Ellison Park says sometimes medicine isn't what a sick person needs.
10: People always think there's some kind of special cure for the
28: cold, but there's no cheat to this, you know?
30: (laughs) He prescribes water, sleep, and time. In Baltimore, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
28: Again, it's phenylephrine that doesn't work, according to the FDA panel. The stuff that you have to ask for from behind the counter, pseudoephedrine, the stuff that's in regular Sudafed, can help.
31: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help.
28: In China, artificial intelligence of the chat GPT kind is already shaping the workplace and an early sector to embrace generative AI tools is video gaming, worth $36 billion in China last year. Marketplace's Jennifer Pack reports from the southwestern city of Chengdu.
25: This company teaches street dancing through video games and animation. It was good business during the pandemic, when everyone was stuck at home under the zero-COVID policy, says the boss, Zhu Bolong.
12: After the restrictions were lifted last December, our business slowed down. I was trying to improve efficiency and save money. I
20: could cut staff, but then our work wouldn't progress.
12: So
25: he got his staff to start playing around with generative artificial intelligence tools.
22: I
12: was sitting in this office and my head animator was on the opposite end. I heard all sorts of loud noises like, wow, like he was surprised.
25: Surprised, he says, at how good images generated by AI were. This summer, he bought a very powerful computer to run AI tools. Using the computer is the head of his art department, Li Guo.
1: Now, at my level, I am considered slow at drawing, but now I can draw much faster with the help of AI. Of course, you must have a good foundation in art, but the AI tools make me feel like I've gone from a rookie to a master."
25: Sure, he says, some jobs will go away, just not the really creative ones. And there are reports of layoffs in the video gaming sector. But Kimi Shin says those might be overblown. He runs a company that makes software tools for clients to create mini video games.
1: I've not heard of companies laying off a lot of people because of AI. I've only heard of people getting laid off because of the sluggish economy.
25: <laughs> he says AI tools still need humans to prompt and work with them. Back at the online dance teaching firm, boss Zhu Bolong says he hopes AI could help him solve other aspects of his business, like music. He admits he sometimes uses copyrighted songs in his games without paying. He says he's been sued a lot.
12: Music royalty fees are getting higher and people are more aware of copyright laws. But as
1: a small entrepreneur,
12: if I pay licensing fees for, say, hundreds of songs, I wouldn't be able to stay in this business.
25: He hopes generative AI could eventually compose music for his company and help cut costs. In Chengdu City, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace.
28: In response to multiple news reports in recent days, China says it has not banned the purchase or use of foreign smartphones. Reuters, The Wall Street Journal and others had reported that some government officials have been told not to use Apple iPhones in China. But no, China's foreign ministry said today no laws, regulations or policy documents about that. Apple stock down 1.7% after its iPhone 15 unveiling yesterday. That stock is up 3 tenths pre-market now. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University, offering a portfolio of online evidence-based mindfulness programs for all. Learn more at professional.brown.edu.